Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hopefully uh, most of you were here last weekend when Kelly and Amy and one of their three children were here for their visit and uh, uh, just kind of introduced our new series, which really isn't a new series in the sense of it's still part of the grand uh, narrative, the divine narrative. Uh, the fact is it's, it's a sub-series, and maybe you can just put that into your way of thinking that every series we do from here on out is really a sub-series of divine narrative, that God is telling one story. And uh, he introduced us to the wandering. Uh, what's that about? That period of time we're going to spend a, a few weeks in that one. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, <laughs> that's where we left off a few weeks ago, if you were with us. Uh, God had delivered Israel, the Passover, uh, delivered them out of slavery, uh, delivered them at the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptians, and they, uh, the birth of a new nation, the nation of Israel that God was forming. It's official. Uh, we're going to continue that, and you kind of know the story, don't you, I think? They go from there, short wander over to uh, Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, then they move into the Promised Land and live happily ever after. Wait, no? Some of you are going, wait a minute, that's not the way I heard it. Well, you're right. The uh, first part of that story is right. They get delivered. Three months it takes them to get to Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments, and then it's 40 years before they move in to the Promised Land. And why? what the heck, why 40 years? What's the huge delay? And the way we look at that may depend on the way we look at God. What's he like? What's his character? What's his perspective? Because um, it could either be a time of punishment or a time of preparation. A time of trials and testing and tribulation or a time of transformation. And uh, I think we're going to discover that even though there's a little of both in there, it's predominantly God's character tells us that this is really a time of preparation and transformation. And that's what's going on here. Uh, I'm going to suggest two main reasons, and we're going to go over these this week and next week. Uh, but one of the reasons that it took 40 years is they weren't ready. They simply uh, were not ready. It was relatively easy to get Israel out of Egypt compared to what it would take to get Egypt out of Israel. Uh, they had lived for generations, hundreds of years in this culture of multiple gods and servitude and slavery. And how are they going to how are they going to learn to trust the story, to trust this new God that they got introduced to? Uh, that's, uh, that's the test. They, they have to trust and have faith before they can enter into the promised land. So that's uh, what we're going to look at next week when we look at the story of the 12 spies that checked out the land and their report and what kind of came from that. Well, this week we're going to look at the other reason why it took 40 years. Uh, that's... That's our task today. Uh, the reason I'm going to suggest is they just didn't know God. Again, they'd been slaves for hundreds of years. Uh, generations had gone by. Uh, they didn't know this God. They'd heard stories probably about the patriarchs and how God showed up and did amazing things back in the day, but that hadn't happened for a long time. He was pretty silent, pretty invisible uh, the last number of generations. Uh, even though... Yes, he showed up. Yes, he revealed himself. Yes, he delivered them with mighty acts demonstrating how 
amazing this God is. Uh, that didn't mean they knew him. It just meant they now they, they see who he is. But they have to get to know him. So we're going to look at the carefully at that first three months of their sojourn through the desert to Mount Sinai. And in there, I think we'll find some fascinating parallels. And uh, really, we'll, we're going to discover this is really more about a wedding and a honeymoon. Yeah, seriously. That sounds a little strange. Hey, we're going to talk about this 40 years in the desert, which we kind of don't look at in great lens, but I'm going to suggest it's, it has a lot to do with a wedding and honeymoon. So let's, uh, let's look at that angle. Uh, we're going to start with just making sure we're aware of what weddings look like and what the process of engagement and wedding looked like in the, in the Old Testament. It started, well, we all kind of have a feel for this idea of arranged marriage in that day. And it, that kind of turns us off a little bit, a little awkward. It's like, how can you marry somebody you don't know? Um, how can that, I mean, don't have a say? And it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't like a lottery pick, like, oh, we're going to... Hey, Sarah, great, okay. It wasn't quite like that. Two families would know each other, they'd talk about it, and they would make decisions based on what was good for both families. Uh, they made, but it was true. They didn't court, date, all that kind of stuff. They, uh, they made the decision, this is going to be a good marriage for everybody concerned. And, uh, and that, was, that was the accepted custom. So that's the first thing to know. Well, then how does the process of engagement and marriage take place? And we're going to look at, we're going to look at several little graphs here. Um, I, I burdened Corbin with, uh, Corbin with making a lot of slides, but it'll be good. It'll be great. Uh, so let's look at that, uh, the process. It started with a proposal. And what did a proposal look like in those days? Well, when it was set, both families agreed. The father and son would travel to the home or the village of the intended bride, the young woman, usually a teenager. And uh, the son would take a cup of wine and offer it to the lady. And if she took the wine and drank from the cup, and she was saying, yes, I'm committed to this relationship. I'm committed to this marriage, to this covenant that we're forming. Uh, and that was the initial proposal. Then what would happen is typically the son would take the cup back and he would say, we will not, I will not drink from this cup again until we are back in my father's house. And then the son and the father would go back to the father's house to prepare a place um, in the father's house. And that tradition and that custom, whether they were farmers or tradesmen, uh, they would go and, and be under what they called an insula, a community of uh, family, that the father was the patriarch, and he'd prepare a place for them, either a room in the big house or perhaps a wing, even a separate house in the compound. But whatever it was, he'd prepare a place for his bride. And uh, depending on what it took to do that and how good the groom was at handiwork, uh, may take a while, may take weeks, months, uh, he was not the one to say. They couldn't set a date because only the father knew, could say, okay, it's ready. The father approved. The room is ready. The wing is ready. The, the house is ready. You can go collect your bride. So at that point, uh, the groom and his friends would go uh, to collect the bride. There it is. Um, and there was consecration involved. They would go, and again, there was no set date. kind of had to be ready. And the, the bride would gather her friends and family, and they would go back to the groom's house, the father's house. And they'd engage in a week-long, typically around a week-long, 
wedding feast and ceremony, uh, lasted a long time in those days, uh, of celebration. Then there was also a a little period, a couple days of consecration for the bride, kind of purity things, washings, just to prepare the bride for uh, the ceremony. And then uh, when that was done, there'd be a trumpet blast, the shofar, which is typically a ram's horn in those days. They would blast the trumpet, blast the horn, and people would know it's time to gather. And they'd gather under what's called a, not a chupa, can you say hoopa with me? Hoopa, Um, that's what it was. The hoopa was nothing more than a canopy or a covering that they would gather under. Uh, Still do that to this day, but that's part of the Jewish wedding ceremony. They would trumpet would blast, they'd gather under the covering, and then the uh, um, and then the uh, the vows would be next. Then uh, and typically in those days in that custom, the groom was the one who prepared the vows, five, six, seven, eight things that. Uh, this is what's going to make our relationship work. Some of them were what he's committing to, what he's asking of his bride, but all intended to say this is what will make our uh, relationship rich. Uh, then the next step, which I'm not going to go into detail, is the consummation of the marriage. Um, thank you. Uh, that was always, that's, that's a bit awkward to go into detail. Let's just say it involved typically the, uh, the groom's best man, and he would stand outside the door uh, until it was time to announce, it's done, they've done it. Yeah, great. And then they'd uh, celebrate and continue on with the feast. It's a great celebration. Uh, I don't know why we got rid of that one. but uh, There it is. Well, then uh, at the end of the week-long celebration, they'd enter into their honeymoon. And the honeymoon was typically like a year long. Uh, it would be a year-long honeymoon where the, the man was not allowed to work. Uh, the whole year was designed to just be together, uh, do nothing else but get to know each other, build a relationship, uh, and that was that was the honeymoon. So there's the uh, there's the process. Let's see if there's not any connection between what God is about with this nation of Israel. Um, let's look at some of these things in the same same way. Compare these. Uh, the proposal. Uh, God first approached a man. He, he approached Abram and said, I want to partner with you in my what I want to do. I want to have a special relationship, a partnership with you. I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless the nations. This is going to, this is going to be the result of this partnership. And Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So that was the initial kind of proposal statement. Uh, here's my intention. But it wasn't just to a person. He made it clear that this is really going to involve your descendants, your offspring, uh, what I will create a nation and uh, so Genesis 15, he says, he took him outside and said, look to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and credited, it, and, it, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So there's kind of the, okay, I accept this offering, if you will. 
I will be committed to this relationship. I'm going to believe you that you will do what you say. Um, then we go, the next little part here is really a, a pretty strange passage. If you haven't seen it before, right after that, telling him what's going to happen, God says this. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now you might think that's really weird. Why is God doing that? But before we get to the rest of it, just know that this was a custom of the day. This is what was known as a, uh, a blood covenant or a blood path covenant. And a lot of times it would be used in a bridal uh, situation called a bridal covenant. And so Moses know, or Abram knows what's going on here. He knows what God is setting up. He's setting up a, a blood covenant proposal. And in those days what would happen is uh, there's a higher party and a lesser party. Uh, vassal servitude kind of thing and the, the the lesser party would walk through first and it'd be this path where they've got all this blood on the ground usually put it in a little ravine so it would kind of pool up and you'd walk through it with your robes on and you'd get blood on your robes and it was basically saying by the penalty of death by the sign of blood I'm going to uphold my part of this covenant um, that's the way it was set up so let's read on Abram brought all these to him cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The bir- then birds of prey came down onto the carcasses. But Abram drove them away. As soon as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. <laughs> a weird passage. Well, if it's true that Abram already knew what, was, what this was for, then what, why was he so... Uh, under this dreadful cloud and this darkness and what he's afraid. Well, because he knows he's the one who's supposed to walk through this first. He knows that he's supposed to, under penalty of death, do everything God is asking him to do. And he knows, I can't do that. I can't be who God wants me to be. I'm going to fail him every day. Maybe you felt that way. Well, so that's why he's terrified. That's why he's, he should have done it right after he prepared it, he should have walked right through, but he couldn't. Hours go by. He has to chase the birds away. And then he goes into this sleep. Then, But I love this. The next verse, or the next section says this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. (laughs) That is great news to Abram. Because essentially God is saying, I will uphold both parts of this covenant. I will walk through under penalty of death. I will make sure that if any of the terms of this covenant are violated, I will pay the price. I will pay the penalty. And Abram knew that God was committed to him in this relationship. Uh, I see that because it was a bridal covenant. I see that as a great picture of what a proposal might look like. Well, if that's the case, then what's the next thing that's supposed to happen? Go to prepare a place. In the same chapter, he says to Abram, The Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In essence, he's saying, hey, I'm going to send you away, but you're going to come back to the Father's place when I'm done preparing it for you. The sin of the Amorites isn't yet in full measure. So this whole family becomes this horde of maybe two million as a nation that are now enslaved, and God's going to go now and collect his bride, if you will. That's what the Passover was all about. That's what the the deliverance of Egypt represents, was God collecting his bride. He's going to bring them back to the land that he promised before, back to the Father's house, if you will. Uh, Then uh, the next thing, he collects his bride, but also, remember, he's supposed to consecrate the bride? How does that work? (laughs) When they get to Mount Sinai uh, as a nation, here's here's what he tells Moses. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. It's not like a weird thing unless God is following the pattern and saying, no, consecrate my bride. Wash their clothes because I'm about to have this ceremony. Uh, So there's that. And then uh, the next verse says this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Crazy. A shofar, a trumpet blast. And then what's supposed to do is call the people. They're supposed to be a, a hoopah over the bride and groom. Well, it says right there, a thick cloud came over the entire mountain, covered all of them. They're now under this canopy, this covering, this cloud that God appears in. Um, and now we have our ceremony. So there's the, the hoopah, and then the vows. The vows of the Ten Commandments. The groom has proposed, here's, here's what it's going to take for this relationship to work that I'm going to uh, uphold. But it, some of them are toward God, some of the things he's asking his bride to do, and others are supposed to reflect God to those around us. Uh, some of them vertical, some of them horizontal. But we have the Ten Commandments. We have the vows uh, that are given. And then finally, what's left is the honeymoon. Well, the honeymoon, they don't know each other. This is an arranged marriage. To these people, they didn't know anything about this God. So they're going to spend not a year, but 40 years. They're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness to get to know God. They're doing nothing else. They're not working. They're not planting they're just looking at who is this God? How do I relate to him? And if you look at uh, that period, which we're going to look at more, it's all about here's, here's how you relate to God, here's how you worship God, sacrifices for God, and just all down the list. We're going to set part of you aside as priests, and they're going to intercede. There's going to be a temple, all this stuff designed to get people, a whole generation it's going to take to get to know who this God is before they can move in to the promised land. Um, well, that's crazy. That's fun. That's, that's pretty cool to look at. Uh, but it doesn't end there. I'm going to go even farther and look at some parallels between Moses and God and the, and the people of Israel. Uh, the first parallel we want to look at, uh, just, these are just general things. Just, I just think the author is putting together things that if you look carefully, you kind of go... Okay, this is pretty cool. This is, this is God at work. First thing you remember, Noah, uh, Noah, Moses was delivered 
from the Nile River. He was put in a basket and he was delivered from the Nile. He was saved. Um, and then eventually he first meets God at Mount Sinai, the burning bush. We remember that little episode. So those are the two things. Uh, compare that to a whole nation that's delivered from water at the Red Sea. They're rescued. They're delivered out of uh, catastrophe at the Red Sea and they first meet God at Mount Sinai. Um, Next thing, uh, when Moses first goes into the wilderness, remember he was, uh, this was 40 years prior, he had murdered an Egyptian and he flees into the Midian, into the desert, and he wanders for a while in the desert and he comes to this well and he sees that these shepherdesses uh, are being uh, accosted, they're being uh, oppressed or abused and by these other shepherds and he rescues them, he drives off the other shepherds and what does he do? He provides water for the shepherdesses. Here, water your flocks. Here, I will give you water as a result. Well, look at that, how that compares to God saving people that were threatened again at water at the Red Sea. And I think what's fascinating is the first thing God does after that is he had about three days later, they haven't had any water, they haven't had any food, and God has Moses strike the rock and give them water to drink. Uh, So a little comparison there. Third thing, uh, what was the result of Moses rescuing these shepherdesses? Well, Jethro uh, becomes his father-in-law. Zipporah is given to him as a bride, as a reward, if you will, for rescuing uh, his daughters. Uh, In the same way, the reward is from God's side, he's given a bride as well. Uh, In this case, the whole nation of Israel is given as a bride to him. Um, Well, let's go down a step even farther and look at the comparison between the dialogue that happens at the burning bush, which again is at the base of Mount Sinai. That's kind of cool to think about. Same location. That's where God first appeared to Moses, was at the burning bush. And they have this dialogue before he goes to Israel. Um, It seemed like we looked at it before. It seemed like kind of a weird dialogue, all these excuses that Moses gives. Well, let's put it into a little different context Let's look at that. The first thing that God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of your fathers who will take you out of Egypt. That's the first thing he says to him. First words he hears God utter. And then when he brings the people to Mount Sinai, the first words he gives to Moses at Mount Sinai, uh, it says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. So it's almost the same exact opening statement at both of those locations. And then the next thing that happens, uh, Moses begins, he's going to tell him what he's going to do. In Exodus 3, 7, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So God, this is his introduction. This is who I am. I'm a God who hears you, who sees you. I will be there for you. I will respond to who you are. I will be your... God. Um, That's how he introduces himself. At Mount Sinai, first commandment, the next thing that happens after he introduces, you shall have no other gods before you, before me. Um, I'm the God who who reveals himself. I'm the God who sees you. I will be for you. You don't need any other gods. Don't pursue other gods. I am the God that is with you and for you. Um, Then it goes on. Exodus 3, 13 Uh, Moses said to God, 
Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they will ask me, what is your name? Then I, what shall I tell them? <laughs> he didn't know. Names were big in those days. What's the name of your God? Are you the God of the Nile? Are you God of... And uh, God had to reintroduce himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you uh, to me. I am is my name. Well, what's the next thing? <laughs> it's the second commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's the second commandment he's given them. It's like my name is unique. My name is different. My name represents God with you. Don't take that in vain. Um, so th- there you go. Third one. Uh, remember Moses, I'll just paraphrase this when Moses is concerned about how will they believe me? How are they going to know that you are the one that uh, actually sent me? And so God gives him three signs. We talked about the kind of weird magic tricks that God gives him. But let's see if there's more to it than just that. At least a, a thought there might be. Remember the first one was take your staff and throw it on the ground it becomes a snake. And uh, when they meet up with the Egyptians he does that. Aaron's rod uh, becomes a snake. Uh, the magicians are able to duplicate it but then what happens is God's snake, God's serpent ate up the other ones. Uh, as if to say I am above your gods. I am more. I am devoted to these people. This is my commitment to them. Uh, and the second little sign um, he said, put your hand in your coat, your cloak, your robe, and pull it out, and it became white, leprous, diseased. And then put it back in, pull it out, and it's healed. Well, I think God's somehow making a statement about, I'll be the God that heals you. I'll be the God that takes care of you. Uh, meet your needs. Heal you when you need it. Uh, and then the third one says, if those two don't work, take, blood, take some water out of the Nile and put it on the ground, it'll become blood. So it'll be the blood and water on the ground. That was the third sign. Well, I think it's kind of a cool idea that God is kind of throwing out there, the idea of I will I even sacrifice myself. But I love how it, even the detail of it, this is my devotion to you, this is my commitment to you, um, that blood will be spilled. If you remember how Jesus, when Jesus died, when they were trying to decide if he was dead, they took a spear, jabbed it into his side, and what happened? Water mixed with blood fell to the ground. Um, I think that's kind of cool. I think long before God is trying to tell a story here, trying to say that's how I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to be committed to you, I'm going to deliver you, uh, I'm going to do what it takes. Um, well, the next thing he says on Mount Sinai, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, that sounds. Where's the connection? Well, the Sabbath is meant to be a sign of your devotion and commitment to God. It says, now your first act is to honor the Sabbath. That's your devotion, that's your commitment to me, just like I was devoted and committed to you. Um, love that parallel. And finally, Moses' last excuse, Exodus 4.10. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. <laughs> kind of an interesting little dialogue. Well, the, the next thing he says on Mount Sinai is, honor your father and mother. 
which I think is a, a, a great parallel. Because we, who gave birth, who gave you life? Your mother and father. Sometimes we complain, I don't have this gift, I don't have that, I don't. Well, parents are there to bring out your gifts, to teach you, to lead you, to show you what to do, entering into adulthood. I think it's a great parallel why that excuse was there and why God parallels that with, with the fourth commandment. Um, so, well, there's, there's kind of our parallels. There's our case, if you will, for marriage and a honeymoon and vows and all of that that God put into this story that seems so foreign to us. But it shouldn't really surprise us um, because it, it continues. It continues in Jesus' day. People knew the custom. They knew what marriages were like and what the process was. And one day Jesus came to the crowd and said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am, back in the Father's house. Jesus set that up from from the get-go. This is a marriage, friends. That's the way he looks at us. Do we know how intimate and how relational God wants to be with us? He set the story thousands of years ago, but Jesus embodied it. Jesus is making the invitation personal. Um, It goes on. In Ephesians, it says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That sounds a lot like consecrating the bride um, as he collects the bride and brings him back. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Well, he's, he's still in the process. The process isn't quite done. Jesus will come and collect his bride. And now it's the only thing left is, are we going to be prepared? Are we going to be ready for when he comes to collect the bride and take us back to the Father's house? The invitations are, are out there. If you remember, um, one of the stories Jesus told was, hey, in the end, what's it going to look like? Well, when I come to collect you, it's, it's, like, it's like the ten virgins. He tells the story. There are ten virgins. And five of them end up having oil in their lamps and five did not. And it's a great analogy because oil in the, in the Bible is a symbol of, of uh, the Holy Spirit. That five of them will have the Holy Spirit in them. Five of them will be prepared. They'll have oil in their lamps, which is really a reflection of what, how do you get the Holy Spirit? In committed relationship with God. God gives us the Holy Spirit as a, as a sign of our inheritance. <laughs> You're prepared so when he comes, he'll take us back to be with the Father. Um, love that. Well, I'm just going to wrap it up with, with this. It seems really appropriate. Jesus is basically constantly courting us in hopes that we will accept the cup, that we will drink from the cup, which could be no better segue into communion because I think this is the point behind communion that Jesus initiated the night that he was betrayed. He wanted his disciples to know. And what did he say? Do you remember on Passover? He gives them the bread, he gives them the cup, and he said, I will not drink from this cup again until we're back in my father's house. God, love it. Uh, this, is a, this is a wedding proposal. That's how intimate and 
to us and committed he is to us. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.